This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, it's with a degree of sadness this morning that uh, we turn for the last time to the book of Micah. So take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Micah chapter 7. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We began looking at verses 18 through 20 of Micah chapter 7 two weeks ago, and we want to conclude our look at these verses and thus conclude our study of this amazing prophetic book that I know the Spirit of the Lord has taught us so much as we have walked through it together. Micah chapter 7, let us hear the Word of God. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You may be seated and let us bow for prayer. Father, as we come to look at this passage again, as we come to look at the book of Micah one last time, we ask that You might help us. Help us, Lord, to put it simply, to be thinking Christians. Help us, Lord, to be open-minded to Your truth. Help us, Lord, to be able to put together all the pieces of the puzzle of this prophetic book. Lord, as we've spent many, many weeks studying its contents, we now end on a very high note. We end with this great question, who is a God like you? Lord, we ask that question because there is a mystery to your wonder, to your glory. So Lord, we pray that we might be taught by Your Spirit tonight. That we might be better worshipers. That we might be more devoted to You. That we might be more grateful for Your love and Your forgiveness that comes to us through Christ. Lord, that You might teach us here through the Old Testament the Gospel truths that we know well, but remind us of them. Plant them deeply within our hearts. Lord, so that our sincere love for Christ might be deeper. Lord, that we might be willing to serve Him in whatever capacity You call us to serve Him. We pray these things in His blessed and holy name. Amen. Well, we are approaching October 31st, which is what we call Reformation Day. That is the day that Martin Luther, of course, nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And as you well know, Luther was not just a man of God, he was not just a preacher of the Word of God, but he was also a a hymn writer and he was a lover of music. Martin Luther said one time, and I quote, music is the art of the prophets and the gift of God. 
Music is the art of the prophets and the gift of God. That is perhaps truer than maybe you have thought beforehand. As we have been looking at verses 18 through 20, we have been speaking about the fact that this is a hymn that the prophet Micah writes. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 7, going all the way through verse 20, Micah pens a hymn in celebration of God's ultimate victory. It's a hymn that has four stanzas to it, and we have looked at each one of these stanzas with one sermon, with the exception of this last stanza, verses 18 through 20, where we were spending two sermons on. This is a hymn. This is a hymn written by a prophet. There was another prophet who wrote a hymn. We call it the Song of Moses, and we spoke about this last time. If you take your Bibles and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, I wanted to look just a little bit closer at the Song of Moses this evening because I want you to see the parallels between Moses' hymn of victory celebration over the Egyptians and Micah's hymn. So keep your finger in Micah chapter 7 and turn back to Exodus chapter 15. Micah asks the question in Micah 7.18, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? That is a question that Moses asks in Exodus 15. If you look with me at verse 11, Moses writes, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That's lowercase g, gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Moses helps us understand really what Micah is getting at when he asks that question in Micah 7.18, who is a God like you? Micah is essentially asking exactly what Moses is asking. And that is a question that really can't fully be answered on this side of heaven. There is no way we could ever search the depth of the riches of God's majesty, of His holiness, of His awesomeness, of His glorious deeds, of His wonders that He has performed. And both of these hymns ask that question, and both of these hymns answer that question by pointing to the victory that God will always have. God will not be defeated. Moses, of course, writes about God's victory over the Egyptians. He writes about God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and how the Egyptian army was crushed by the waters of the sea and they were drowned. Both of these hymns have many parallels. For instance, in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 14 we read, "...the peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia." And then also verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by by whom you have purchased. Moses says uh, the press reported what happened here in the parting of the waters. God's people passed through safely, but the waters came crushing down on the Egyptian army. And because of that report that has gone out throughout the land, people are in sheer terror and dread of God. They tremble, as verse 14 says. They fear this God. Who is a God like this? Well, Micah, back in Micah chapter 7, just flip back over for a minute, speaking about 
the defeated enemies of his day, he says in verse 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Same exact language Moses uses in Exodus chapter 15. And in fact, we know that Micah is copying that language from Exodus chapter 15 because if you skip back to verse 15 of Micah 7, he says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things things. He's comparing God's deliverance of Israel from the Assyrians and eventually from all of their enemies to God's deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians. What do God's enemies do? They tremble because there is no God like this. His power. His judgment. This is not a God you mess with. This is a God who will have His ways. Micah is singing about this. He wants God's people to sing about this, just like Moses wanted God's people to sing about the great victory of God. The enemies tremble. Not only that, but notice again verse 16 of Exodus 15. They're frozen in fear and they're silenced. I read it, but verse 16 again of Exodus 15, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. They are just frozen in fear. Micah borrows that same sort of um, language in Micah 7 and verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. Death. They put their hands over their mouths. They are silenced. They are frozen in fear. That's what happens to all of God's enemies and God's people sing about this victory. God's people celebrate the fact that sinners, that is the wicked, will be punished. That they will be silenced. That there is coming a great day in which they will place their hands over their mouths as if to say, oh my goodness, what have I done in rejecting this God? There's another parallel. In Exodus 15 and verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. He refers here to the steadfast love of God. You have redeemed them. The redemption of God. God has guided His people with the strength of His arm. And how does the end of Micah's hymn go? Well, verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression. He doesn't retain His anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, tread our iniquities underfoot, cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. Same exact language that Moses used to describe the steadfast love that God had for Israel during Moses' day. So Micah is a hymn writer that is borrowing, we could say, um, the lyrics of this hymn from that great song of Moses. Of course, Moses is singing about God's enemies being cast into the sea. But notice in Micah 7, Micah sings about our sins being cast into the sea. Notice again, verse 19, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. That is a glorious truth. Because although the Egyptian army was a great enemy of God and God's people, the greatest enemy of God's people is sin. It is sin and it is Satan. 
And so what Micah is saying here is that that song of Moses was not merely about God's victory over the Egyptians. Oh no, that song was also about God's victory over sin. He will defeat sin. He will defeat all sin. Casting it into the depths of the sea just as He cast the Egyptian army into the depths of the sea. This is the prophecy of Scripture throughout. If you go with me to uh, the book of Jeremiah just for a moment, Jeremiah chapter 50, here is another prophet. We've looked at the prophet Moses, the prophet Micah. What does the prophet Jeremiah say? Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 20, In those days and in that time declares the Lord, Iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found. Why? Jeremiah says, For I will pardon, speaking on behalf of God, I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. There's coming a day, Jeremiah says, in which people will actually have a magnifying glass trying to find iniquity, trying to find sin. And they, they won't be able to find it because God has cast that sin away. He has pardoned all the sins. Notice verse 20 of Jeremiah 50. Of those of His remnant. Those of His remnant. Jesus did not die upon the cross at Calvary for every single human being that has ever existed. As Reformed people, we believe in the doctrine of particular redemption. Jesus Christ shed His blood and He did not waste one ounce of that blood for the remnant of His people. That is the elect of His people. He casts the sins of all of His remnant into the sea. He is a forgiving God. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He is a kind God. He is a gracious God. Who is a God? Like this. Who is a God that can express this sort of steadfast love, this sort of grace and mercy to literally cast our sins away and forget them and yet pour out the fury of His hell upon all of His enemies? Well, there's only one God like this and it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Scripture. Any other God is a figment of one's own imagination. There are people today that create God in their own imagination, in their own liking. But you cannot have a God that is all love. You cannot have a God that is all judgment. The true God of Scripture is a God of love to His people, and He's a God of judgment to His enemies. God's people are to embrace both of those. And they're not just to sort of embrace them and acknowledge them every now and then. They are to sing about those realities. This is a hymn that Micah is writing about God's victory over sin. God's victory over our great enemy, which is sin. And God's victory over all sinners. Celebrating His deliverance of His people ultimately through Jesus Christ. Now we have been looking at this last stanza, verses 18-20, through 20, and we have said 
that in order to answer this question, who is a God like you, we need to stay close to the text. And when we stay close to the text, we see that Micah does not merely ask this question, but Micah answers this question. And the way that he answers this question, who is a God like you, or who is a God like this, is by pointing to the saving character of God. And there are four qualities to God's saving character. First of all, we see His saving forgiveness. Notice the beginning of verse 18. Who is a God like you? Micah says, one who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. This is a forgiving God. It is a pardoning God. Part of God's saving character involves His forgiveness. His pardoning. His pardoning of iniquity, as Micah says. His forgiveness of transgression. Both of those words, as we saw two weeks ago, iniquity and transgression are used by Isaiah in Isaiah 53 to speak about the iniquity and the transgression, the perversion, the the twisted nature of man's wickedness that the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to shed His blood for upon the cross of Calvary. That language of passing over is not saying that God brushes sin under the rug. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not God saying, oh, your sin is not that big of a deal. Let's just forget about it and never bring it up again. No, the terminology of passing over goes back again to the night in which Israel was delivered from Egypt and the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelite homes because they had put the blood of the Lamb upon the doorposts of their homes. We read in the New Testament that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And when we put all of that together, we understand that that blood of that Lamb in the Old Testament is meant to picture the blood of the Lamb of the New Testament who is the Lord Jesus Christ so that sin was paid for. Salvation was paid for. Salvation is free to you and I, but it wasn't free to Christ. He paid for it with His own blood. He is that Passover Lamb so that God can pardon iniquity perversion, and transgression. And He does it for the remnant of His inheritance. He does it for the remnant. He does it for His elect. There is forgiveness for all of those God has chosen before the foundation of the world, which is the same group of people that are the ones that Jesus Christ died for at Calvary. It's His remnant. Of course, Micah is writing this Uh, to Israel for the nation of Israel to sing. And it's very clear, isn't it, that the nation of Israel were not all the elect people of God. From a surface standpoint, from a national standpoint, yes, they were the elect people of God. Outwardly speaking, God chose the nation of Israel. God set the nation of Israel apart. But there was an elect remnant within that elect nation. There was a spiritual remnant. Those are the ones whose sins are forgiven. Throughout this prophecy, Micah has spoken about the judgment of God. The judgment of God. The judgment of God is coming. It's really not until the end that he begins to speak about the forgiveness of God for the remnant because the remnant was a very small group of people. For most of this nation, they would be judged. They were not true believers. They did not receive the forgiveness of God. They were wicked through and through. They refused to repent of their sins. They followed in the ways of the world. They followed in the ways of the other nations. Who was a God like this? 
who is a God that will choose one particular nation and judge that particular nation, but save a remnant of that nation from which will come another remnant made up of Gentiles, which will constitute the Israel of God for whom He sent His Son to die for. That's not a story that can be made up, but that is the story of the Bible. That is the God you and I serve. That is the God of heaven and earth. Who is a God like this? He's a God that forgives. He forgives all of those who come to Jesus Christ with faith, who repent of their sins. And we know Jesus says in the New Testament, doesn't He? That my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they come after me. All of God's remnant will come to Him and none of them will be lost. They will all be found. Who is a God like this? He's a God that forgives. So Micah answers, pointing to the saving character of God, pointing to God's saving forgiveness. But there's more. He also points to God's saving fondness or His saving love. Notice the end of verse 18. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. At the heart of what motivates God to forgive is the fact that God loves. God is not obligated to forgive anybody of anything ever. What compels Him to forgive is what it is at the heart of His character, and that is steadfast love. Mercy. For His remnant, there can be no forgiveness apart from God's love. This is what makes up this God. This is very simple, isn't it? Micah in this last stanza is pointing to the saving character of God. Who is a God like this? He's a saving God. He's marked by saving forgiveness. He's marked by saving fondness or love. And that brings us to the third point. He's marked by saving forgetfulness. Saving forgetfulness. Notice verse 19. Micah says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So let me put it to you this way. The result of God's saving fondness or love that we just spoke about from the end of verse 18 is presented here in verse 19. Our sins are removed. The sins of God's people are removed. That's the result of God's love. As Micah writes, he says at the beginning of verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. That is a word of tenderness. And if you look it up in the Hebrew, it suggests, that particular Hebrew word does, it suggests maternal love. It's, it's, it's picturing here the fact that God's love is like that of a mother to her children. We spoke about this in Sunday school for a little bit. It may surprise you to know that the Bible obviously refers to God as a father, but the Bible also uses imagery um, that reflects God's tenderness like that of a mother. And it's just this type of loving, motherly compassion of God that leads Him to do the unthinkable, which is, notice verse 19, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will tread them underfoot. Just as Moses sang about the Egyptian enemies being tread under the foot of God, being defeated, I think he's borrowing that metaphor here, Micah is. I think that Micah probably is also 
following along with the first mention of the Gospel. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when he says he will tread our iniquities underfoot, that's exactly what he did. Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ defeated Satan upon the cross. God predicted this in the garden right after the fall. Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and me, uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head. This is God's words to the serpent. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Paul would say in Romans 16.20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under the feet of the church. On the cross, Satan was defeated for all intents and purposes. God's people were redeemed. God's people were saved. But as Peter says, Satan still roams around. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But soon there's coming a day in which the feet of God's people who are united to Jesus Christ will crush Him. He will be treaded down. And with all that language of Satan being treaded down, Satan being crushed, Satan being defeated, includes this idea of iniquities being put underfoot. God squashing our sin. God squashing Satan who is the author of sin. God doing away with sin. God doing away with iniquity. God completely doing away with it. And notice that imagery associated with Moses' leading of Israel. Back in Exodus chapter 15, more imagery is used at the end of verse 19. Micah says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The Egyptian army was the great enemy of God's people. Sin is the great enemy of God's people. Both will be cast into the depths of the sea. Go back to Exodus 15 just for a moment. And verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of Your majesty, You overthrow Your adversaries. You send out Your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of Your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw My sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with Your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out Your hand. The earth swallowed. You have led in Your steadfast love the people whom You have redeemed. You have guided them by Your strength to Your holy abode. Dearly beloved, as we read that passage, we are not merely to think about Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. We are to think about Satan and our sin that is defeated through Christ. Satan is crushed. All of our iniquities cast into the depths of the sea. 
Israel was no longer prisoners to the Egyptians. Christians are no longer prisoners to sin. Listen to this verse, Romans 6.14. Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Under grace. This is the saving character of God. His forgetfulness. His forgetfulness of our sins and of our iniquities. One of my favorite passages, Psalm 103. Turn over there for a moment. Psalm 103. We often will use this verse in our worship as an assurance of pardon. The words of God, Psalm 103, verse 11. Oh, let's start in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The implication is He should, right? But He doesn't. Because of Christ, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love. There's that word again. Hesed. Toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. He is a forgetting God. He removes our transgressions because of His steadfast love, because of His compassion. Here in verse 13, he's spoken of God is as a father who has compassion. In Micah 7, the word compassion is used, but that Hebrew word is speaking about a motherly and tenderly quality. So Micah speaks about God as a tender mother. The psalmist speaks about God as a tender father who has compassion on His people. Micah 7.19 therefore teaches this very simple truth, and that is the complete and total forgiveness of God through Christ, the removal of all of our guilt, the removal of all of our sin for all of God's true people who have come to Christ in faith and repented of their sins. Here's another verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 43.25, I I am He who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will not remember your sins. This is a God who forgets our sins. He forgets our sins. He has compassion on us. He treads our iniquities underfoot. He casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Now I want to paint this picture for you with a little bit more color. This is not some isolated verse. This is not some isolated concept. It may be strange to think about God forgetting our sins. We might have trouble philosophically or theologically understanding exactly what that means. But rather than backing off of that, I want to buckle down. I want to drill down further. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. This is not an isolated concept. Isaiah 38 and verse 17. These are the words of Hezekiah. He says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life, Hezekiah says to God, from the pit of destruction, for you have cast 
all my sins behind your back. You have cast all my sins behind your back. It's as if God took off the rearview mirror. He can't see behind Him. The forgetfulness of sin. God literally puts our sin, because of the Gospel, He puts our sin out of sight. That's what Isaiah 38.17 says. Turn back with me to Psalm 103 just for a moment. I want to look at that just for a moment again. Psalm 103. I want to show you something. Verse 12. Let's look a little bit closer at this. Psalm 103, verse 12. God not only puts our sin out of His sight, but the psalmist says God puts our sin out of His reach. Psalm 103, verse 12. Notice this language. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. From the furthest, from one geographic point to another. As far as the east is from the west, God has put our sin out of His sight. He has put our sin through Christ out of His reach. Here's another one. God has put our sin out of His mind. Notice uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. You're probably more familiar with this passage. It is um, the New Covenant passage. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, and no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here it is, for I will forgive their iniquity. And what does that mean? Just this, I will remember their sin no more. I'll remember it no more. The forgetfulness of God. That's part of His saving character. He puts your sin out of His sight. He puts your sin out of His reach. He puts your sin out of His mind. Here's a final one. He puts our sin out of complete and total existence. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. I want you to turn to all of these because I don't want you just to take my word for it. Isaiah 44, verse 22. You're familiar with this verse. The Lord's redemption of Israel. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. It was here like a cloud and gone. It was here like a mist and it's gone. Return to me for I have redeemed you. He puts sin out of existence. Out of existence. David knew that. When David had committed his great sin with Bathsheba, David knew he had messed up. David knew that he had sinned against God in such a shameful way. He prays to God in Psalm 51, doesn't he? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, 
according to your abundant mercy. And what is he asking him to do? Blot out my transgressions. Make them disappear. Forget them. What does he say in verse 9? Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Now why do you suppose David would pray that? The only reason David would pray that is because he had faith that God would do that because of his steadfast love. He would hide his face from David's sins. He would blot out his iniquities. You say, well, all of that's Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, I'm glad you asked. Peter preached this way in Acts chapter 3. He says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Christ came. He suffered. He was raised from the dead. You ignorant fools murdered Him. So now what do you do? He says, repent therefore and turn back. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That they may be done away with. God is a forgetting God. He puts our sin out of sight. He puts our sin out of reach. He puts our sin out of His mind. He puts sin out of existence. He defeats it. Now, if that is too extreme for you, let me be so bold as to say, gently but firmly, you're not a Christian and you don't understand the Gospel. God is so loving and so merciful that His forgiveness appears scandalous. That is the depth of His love. That is the depth of His forgiveness. It's the depth of His grace. It's the depth of His mercy. That is the shocking reality of the Gospel. That's why the Jews to this day reject it. Because they're focused on the law. They're focused on obedience to the law. They've rejected the Messiah. Ethnic Jews have. They've rejected God's grace. They've rejected God's mercy. They've rejected God's love through Christ because it all sounds too good to be true. It sounds scandalous. It's a stumbling block. But this is the true God. Who is a God like this? That He would be so gracious and so merciful that He would put our sins out of His sight, out of reach, out of His mind, out of existence. He treads our iniquities underfoot. He casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I hope you know that forgiveness tonight. I hope you know there is there's no sin that is unforgivable. There is no sin that is unforgivable if you come to Christ. You give your sin to Christ, He throws it away. He casts it into the depths of the sea. We've been dealing with the stern, judging character of God throughout the book of Micah. It's been a hard message. Week after week to hear about God's judgment. God's judgment. Even God's discipline on His own people. But here, Micah ends by saying, look, 
point and look to the saving character of God. He's a God of mercy and grace. To all of those who come to Christ, to all of those who look in faith to Jesus Christ. This is the central storyline of the Bible that you are far worse than you think you are. God is far more gracious and loving than you'll ever give Him credit for. Those two things must be acknowledged to become a Christian. Those two things must be embraced and and you must hold to those two things in order to be a true Christian. In order to truly be part of the family of God, the Israel of God. The saving character of God. Who is a God like this? He's a saving God. We've seen... His saving forgiveness, verse 18, He pardons iniquity, passes over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. His saving forgiveness, we've seen as saving fondness. He delights in steadfast love. His saving forgiveness, His saving fondness. His saving forgetfulness, He treads iniquities underfoot. He casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He's a saving God. His saving forgiveness, His saving fondness, His saving forgetfulness. But all of this is rooted in the fourth quality, and that is His saving faithfulness. His saving faithfulness. Notice verse 20. Last verse of the book. Micah says to God, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is what God's saving character is rooted in. It's rooted in His faithfulness to His covenant. His loyalty, His loyalty to the fathers, beginning, as verse 20 says, with Abraham. His steadfast love to Abraham, then extending, as it says, to Jacob, His faithfulness to Jacob. God kept His promise to Abraham, and then to Jacob, and then to, as verse 20 says, all the fathers from the days of old. Generation after generation after generation, God has never changed. He's been faithful. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3 earlier that there are scoffers. The world is always full of scoffers that scoff about the return of Christ. But God is patient. God is patient generation after generation after generation after generation to show grace and to show mercy. He has kept His faithfulness to the covenant. And that's why if you're a Christian tonight, you give all of the glory to Him. It's because of His faithfulness. That is part of His saving character. That is the heart of God's saving character. It is not your faithfulness to God that saves you. It is God's faithfulness to you, and not just you, but to all of His people generation after generation after generation. He has sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Folks, that is the only hope that we have. That is the only hope that we have. The faithfulness to God. This world changes. Sin increases. Wickedness increases. Times are changing for us, but God will never change. Back again to Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I quoted it earlier. Isaiah 43.25 God says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I am He who blots out your transgressions, notice God says, 
for my own sake. Why does God forgive? Why does God save? Why does God demonstrate grace and mercy generation after generation after generation after generation to sinners for His own sake? Let me put that to you another way. Because He said He would do that. And therefore, He will do that. He does it for His own sake. He does it for His own glory. He does it for His own reputation. His covenantal faithfulness. When God says He's going to do something, He does it. He does it. Did God save you for you? In a sense, sure. But God saved you for Himself. He did it for His own sake. For His own glory. To reveal the strength of His faithfulness, of His devotion, the depth of His love and His grace, which all culminates in Christ. So when Micah says here, you will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old, Micah knew, as all Old Testament saints knew, that there was coming a Messiah that would fulfill all of these promises. And we know that when we turn to the New Testament. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. A little summary statement by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 4. Speaking about the faith of Abraham, Abraham was justified by faith. The promise was realized through faith. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, Abraham had faith and was declared righteous. For if it is the adherents of the law, that is those who obey the law, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If it's all up to our faithfulness, then why does God's faithfulness matter? What is the strength of God's promise if part of us, even part of it is up to us? No, it's all, it's all of grace. It's all of faith. Verse 15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His, that is Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's a fancy way of saying to the Jew and to the Gentile. The Jew who was under the Mosaic law and the Gentile. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. God said that to Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God gives life to the dead. God did that in Abraham's day, didn't He? He gave life to the dead. And God did that in the day of Christ. By raising Christ from the dead. God kept His promise to Abraham by raising Christ from the dead and giving to Abraham a spiritual seed of all the nations of the earth. The elect from every tribe tongue, nation, and people group. The remnant of God. Flip over with me to Galatians 3 for a moment because this is really where Paul speaks more in depth on this. Galatians 3 and verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what Paul's point was in Romans 4. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles 
by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You say, that sounds too good to be true. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's exactly what this is saying. You say, well, I chose Christ, didn't I? I um, not killed anybody. Love my parents. Good citizen. Verse 10, here's what I would say to you. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. You have to be perfect. And there was only one who was perfect, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Either you're in Christ and blessed, or you're under the law and cursed. There's only two types of people in the world. The saved and the unsaved. There are only two destinations. Heaven and hell. The Gospel is crystal clear. You want God to forget your sin. You want to wrestle with that tension. How can God forget that? How could He put my sins so far out of reach that He forgets them? He'll never bring them up again. How can He be just and do that? The only way He can be just and do that is by punishing His only begotten Son on the cross. Punishing His Son for your sins. In that sense, His justice is met. His love is on full display. Your sins are forgiven. They are nailed to the cross. To borrow New Testament language, to borrow Old Testament language, they're cast into the depths of the sea. Not because of your faithfulness, but because of His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Back in Micah chapter 7, in verse 20, we'll close with this. Again, reading the verse, you will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the faithfulness of God. But um, he's also copying off Moses again here. Turn back to Exodus chapter 34. He's taking his hymn from lyrics in Moses' famous song, and now he closes the whole book by quoting the great confession of faith which was part of the covenant renewal ceremony in the days of Moses. Moses records this in Exodus. When Moses received the law of God, on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34 and verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Faithfulness. He's copying that word faithfulness. Micah's saying in Micah 7.20, God was faithful to Abraham and Jacob. God was faithful to Moses, he was faithful to all the fathers. If you fail to see that the storyline of Scripture involves a covenant, let me just say you are in grave danger of dismissing the faithfulness of God and the necessity for His 
covenantal faithfulness. And, in, and when you do that, you are also in danger of giving yourself even just a little bit of credit that your salvation had something to do with you. It had nothing to do with you. It has to do with God's steadfast love, His covenantal faithfulness as He swore to the fathers from the days of old. His steadfast love is hesed. His unfailing mercy and faithfulness. As believers, we rest on the word of that promise. We have nothing else to rest on. We rest on the word of God or we don't rest at all. We rest on the promises of the gospel. We opened with a quote from Luther. I want to close with a quote that Luther gave in his exposition of Micah. The quote he takes from Jerome, the church father, in his commentary on Micah. So this is Luther quoting Jerome a long time ago. Jerome writes a prayer at the end of his commentary on Micah. In part, this is what it says, and I quote, O God, preserve unto us this Thy mercy forever and ever, so that we may walk in the light of Thy Word and escape all dangers threatening us from Satan and the world through Jesus Christ, Thy Son and our Redeemer. He says, preserve us that we may walk in the light of Thy Word. Cling to God's Word that we may escape all dangers from Satan and the world through Jesus Christ, Thy Son and our Redeemer. Amen, amen, amen. End quote. It's another way of saying Christ is our only hope. His Word is is where we place our anchor. It isn't up to us. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. God saved you in spite of who you are. He did that in mercy. He did that in grace. He did it for His own sake. He did it for His own glory. Who is a God like this? And of course, we would urge you that the other side of this is the fierce judgment of God. As sweet as His mercy and grace is, His judgment, His anger, His fury is just as real. There is no hope apart from His Son. There is no salvation apart from His grace through His Son. And we urge you to come to Christ at this moment. You have no clue what the world will look like tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, run to Christ. And you will find His mercy, His grace, and God's steadfast love. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for Your character that is revealed to us in Scripture. The fullness of Your character. Father, this is heavy stuff because it forces us to face who You really are. Not who the world says You are. Not who even other church leaders say You are. Who twist Your Word, as Peter says, who are ignorant 
They twist your word to their own destruction. This is what your word says you are. Who is a God like you? Father, we fear you. We love you. We're so grateful for you. We're grateful for you sending your son to be the payment for our sins. Lord, we ask that as we now close our study in Micah, that you might help our church to be faithful. Just as Micah and the remnant was faithful in their day, help us to be faithful in our day. Your judgment is real. Your judgment upon nations. Your discipline even upon your own people. All of that is real. And yet in the midst of that, we are to sing the glorious praises of your victory. We are to thank you for your victory over sin, over Satan. You've cast all of our iniquities into the sea. You've you've treaded down all of our transgressions. You are so faithful to your promises. We thank you, Lord, that Our salvation is not contingent upon our works or our faithfulness, but upon Your scandalous grace. Who is a God like You? Though we can't understand it, we know Your Word says this. We embrace it. We believe it because this is our only hope. The only place we have to turn. We embrace You in all Your glorious mystery and wonder. We receive Your Son as our Savior. We rest in Him. We hope in Him. We long for His coming. We pray that You would purify us by these truths that we have learned. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.